To express yourself, where teens talk and the world listens. Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be the Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. Learn from yesterday. Live for today, hope for tomorrow. That's Albert Einstein. Hello, welcome to Express Yourself. We're a program by, for, and with creative young people, a platform to give teens a voice right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. I am the producer, Cynthia Bryan, and I am starting the show off today here on Express Yourself. We bring this program to you as an outreach program from the Be The Star You Are charity. We are a top nonprofit, honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. And today's show is going to be a great one because it is back to school. Now, Be The Star You Are has been uh, been a top nonprofit for many years, and we want to give a shout-out of gratitude to all our volunteers and supporters for helping us be a top nonprofit. If you would like to get involved or make a donation, visit bethestarur.org. Every dollar counts, and we use the funds for our outreach programs. And whenever you want to listen to Express Yourself, obviously come here to the Voice America Network, the Empowerment Channel, but we're also available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as I said, today's show is going to be about back to school. I can't believe that summer is almost over. So in our second segment, Rose is going to be discussing her thoughts about school and its influence on food. And in our third segment, Sharanya will be with us again as well. But right now, we have the amazing nerd extraordinaire, Kirsty, and she's going to talk about her back to school. Well, welcome, Kirsty, again. We always love having you on the show. So are you ready to rock and roll? Yeah, I am. All right. Well, let's do it, girlfriend. Go ahead and tell us what your thoughts are about getting back to school. Salutations from your very own Express Yourself debater, me. My name is Kirsty, and I report for my segment, Nerd Extraordinaire, where we say salutations a lot, but also where I share my experiences as a youth debater and fiction writer. Welp, school is bleeding into the summer as time squirms along, and for me, eighth grade ominously looms behind me. Summer ending is that feeling when you're at the grocery store waiting in the checkout line and your mom's like, oh, I forgot the milk, and you're getting closer and closer to the cashier, but your mom is yet to be seen. Come on, we've all had that feeling. Your heart thumps in your ears, your stomach rests in your throat, your foot taps against the spotless tiles, the cheap fluorescence cast a menacing glow over the head of the cashier, getting closer, closer, closer. 
School is the cashier getting closer, 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 except you relieved of the agony once your mom comes back. Milk in hand. But you can never escape the horror that is school. But literally, I love school. I actually get sad when summer break starts, and I'm that one kid who always says summer break is ending like one would say summer break is beginning. I feel like debaters can relate. Speaking of debate, yay! Guys, debate season is back! Prepare for days and days of rebuttals and cases and stuff. Stuff. Stuffy stuff. Now, in case you don't know, this time of year is when debate teams across the United States start to train for tournaments. For my personal experiences, most tournaments happen during the November-December period, but they start around now. You know what this is? A great opportunity to start debating. No matter what age or what grade you are, if you're interested, you should definitely start. In previous episodes, I showed you new debate techniques and how to utilize your existing debate knowledge. In today's episode, I'm going to show you the ropes of one debate style in particular, public forum debate. Based on my experiences, I found public forum debate to be the most common style taught in school. There's no scientific evidence or anything to support this, but I personally think that this debate style is the most common. Let's start with the basics. The debate topic is called a resolution. A resolution is either negated or affirmed by the two sides. At the start of the debate, each, each of the keywords in the resolution is defined by both sides. This is done to show the judge which definition of each word you use. Public forum debate requires a first speaker and a second speaker, so two people. When you're on a debate team, you'll have to develop both an affirmative case and a negative case. You're going to be debating on one side, but debate tournament, debate tournaments, seriously, I don't know how to speak English, but debate tournaments have multiple rounds, and the side is chosen with a coin flip, so you have to be equally prepared for both scenarios. Whoever wins the coin flip gets to choose whether they want to choose the order or whether they want to choose the side. So basically, they're choosing what they want to choose, which is a bit confusing, but you'll get it soon. When choosing your side, you have to consider which side is morally better than the other. And also, you have to consider which side your team has better arguments for. This is the format. First, the first speakers from each team present the cases, a four-minute speech that encloses all of the arguments that either affirm or negate the resolution. You have to develop multiple arguments for your case, and they have to go with one another. If you have two contradicting arguments, it could be it could be confusing. You have to have evidence to support your points, but too much evidence will make your case like a melted ice cream cone, barely put together, disintegrating as you speak, and just like blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 indeed. No one likes melted ice cream. Let's get into a teeny tiny bit of propositional calculus. You might be like, calculus? Now, when I say calculus, you're probably thinking, shall we sacrifice who now? Well, I hope you aren't thinking that, but, but really, we, when we talk about calculus, we really think about sine equals to O divided by H, cosine equals to A divided by H, yada, yada, yada. But, 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 but there will be absolutely no trigonometric functions in this. And you might be asking me, how is it calculus if there are no cosine, sine, tangent, whatevers? Propositional calculus is not a calculus with numbers, but one with words. Think of this like a dissection. No matter how many anatomy te 
textbooks you read. You won't have a thorough understanding of the human body till you actually dissect one. This is our dissection, but less stinky and gross. The resolution in this case is an argument. Now you want to argue in a mathematical way. Some non-mathematical ways of arguing are authority, because I said so, bribery, if you think bananas are secretly in disguise, then I might get you a puppy. Overwhelming, basically using brute force and talking to someone till they give up. So, bananas are secretly in disguise, but bananas are secretly in disguise. I, bananas are secretly in disguise. Fine, bananas are secretly in disguise. Cool. Well, that last one sometimes us debaters use in times of ultimate despair, where your opponents just astronomically better than you. But we need to be that astronomically better debater to avoid that. An argument is a bunch of propositions, which are unopinionated, declarative statements. An argument is valid only if its conclusion is related to its statements. And if all the premises are true, premises are just propositions made to support the argument, like evidence, then the conclusion can't be false. So, there are two parts to an argument, the hypothesis and the conclusion. The hypothesis is like a suggestion. It's a statement, the if part of an if-then sentence. And a conclusion, well, it's a conclusion. Let's take the resolution from above. Bananas are secretly in disguise. That in if-then form would be, if there are bananas, then they are secretly in disguise. Now, the opposite of each is called the negation. Let's name our hypothesis P and our conclusion Q. If P, then Q is the conditional form. If not P, then not Q is the inverse form of our statement. If Q, then P is the converse. The contrapositive, ooh, big blue, it sounds scaly, is if not Q, then not P. Let's plug in our good old statements. If they're not bananas, then they are not secretly in disguise. If something is secretly in disguise, then they are bananas. If something is not secretly in disguise, then they are not bananas. The contrapositive and conditional forms will always have the same truth value, which means that they are either both true or both false. The same goes for the inverse and the converse. This is the dissection of an argument, except sadly, there are no guts involved. Well, it's, it's sad for me, but some of you might be grateful. So, speaker one of the first team and speaker one of the second team both present the four-minute speeches. What's next? The next thing is what debaters spiral into a hole of despair for. Something that those excruciating months and months of preparation can't conquer. Behold, everyone, the devil's delight. Crossfires! Dun, dun, dun! A crossfire is three minutes, but let's be honest, it feels like three centuries. In a crossfire, both debaters have equal amount of the floor to build clash. And this is the real argument. A good question is short and concise, and a good answer actually answers the question. Some debaters beat around the bush, but this is jarringly obvious to the judge. So, if you can't beat the bush, just beat next to the bush, or pretend to beat the bush. Where did that saying even come from? It makes no sense. Anyway, what I was saying was that you can either answer in a way vaguely related to the question if you're stuck, or frame your answer in a way that supports you. There are, unfortunately, three crossfires, one after the two cases, another after the two rebuttals, and one after the summary speeches. The first one is speaker one from each team, the second one is speaker two from each team, and the third is all four debaters, called the grand crossfire. Judging by my experiences, it's always speaker two from each team just debating, while the speaker ones remain quiet for unknown reasons. 
I've always been speaker too, so maybe all of the speaker ones have a secret organization which will take over the world as humans slowly become dumb and technology stands hand in hand with all the speaker ones as the world is falling apart at the hinges and the population steadily decreases as Earth goes to snowball form again. And the ozone layer is depleted. Humanity faces a violent death as the speaker ones continue to over the universe. Okay, okay, I should probably stop this. What was I talking about again? Oh, yes, the devil's delight. So, in a crossfire, my dissection should help you, but you should have aggression in one. Because, as I've said way too many times, it shows that you care, but don't fight, because that seems unprofessional, or whatever. After the first crossfires, the rebuttal speeches presented by the second speakers. These are the third and fourth constructive peach speeches, and they analyze and explain flaws in the opponent's arguments. This is done by presenting evidence that destroys or reduces the opposing position, presenting alternate cases that are not accounted for the op opposition, turning the analysis to the other side, and exposing argument inconsistencies between the speakers or between the opponents and their statements during the class file. Let me cre create a template for you to make things easier. First, present an introduction that links the second speech to the first speech, followed by an overview of the opponent's argument followed by reasons slash evidence, why the opponent is wrong, followed by why what this argument clash now means for your side and the debate. Some time in these speeches should be de dedicated to rebuilding the original case. Next, the uh, summary speeches. Summary speeches basically summarize all the points stated in your case, but they also summarize all the new points brought up in the class files. You also present new evidence which can support your argument and build a stronger foundation for it. New responses to the opposition are also acceptable, but new arguments that have never been brought up in the debate are not. I was just about to say respectable over there. When you summarize your arguments, make sure to stress how your side is more beneficial at the end. This is done in the last part of the debate, the final focus, but you can only give a little preview in your summary speeches. Summary speeches are only two minutes, done by the speaker ones. Yee, so make sure to be quick. Speaking of the final focus, let's move on. The final focus is a two-minute speech done by speaker two, which frames why your team has won the debate. No new arguments may be presented, but new evidence may be introduced. When writing the final focus, ask yourself, if I were judging this round, who would I vote for? Here are some strategies. Choose the most important argument you have and summarize the evidence and warrant that make it so important. Turn a major argument from your op opponent into a winning analysis and evidence of one of your important arguments. This is called clinching two arguments. Answer the most important argument you may be summarizing. Maybe losing. I don't know. There's something wrong with my mouth today. Answer the most important argument you may be losing by summarizing the analysis and evidence that you believe takes out the opponent's argument. Choose an argument that you believe the community judge will most likely vote on. Expose a major inconsistency made by your opponent to arguments that contradict each other, at least one of which the opponent is focusing on to win the debate. Okay, these are a lot of strategies, and you don't have to use them all, but you have to understand them so you can use them in later debates and you don't have to use them all in one debate, but if you if you incorporate some of these slowly, then they can make your argument better. Okay, so this is this is a lot. So let's do an overview. Long story short, after the cases, the bottles which are responses to the opponent's arguments, there's another class file, ugh. But and there are summary speeches after that, 
which summarize your points, no new arguments, but new responses from the class files, then another class file, bleh. Then the final focus speeches, where you say why you should win, make sure to have lots of impacts, present new evidence, but no more arguments, and basically say how, you're ba how bad your opponent is and how good you are. And this sentence is way too long, so I'm gonna put a period. This might be a lot to digest, but that's okay. In order to be a good debater, you don't have to memorize all of this, but you have to understand it, and that takes longer than 15-ish minutes to do. Make sure to stop your thinking caps and brighten up those back-to-school blues with some, of, with some of our good old friend, Public Forum. And I also have a weird mouth today. Kirthy, I just have to say, how long have you been a debater? You know so much about it. I wouldn't have even known where to begin. Yeah, I've been a debater uh, since I was in second grade. So that is that is almost six years now. Wow, I think you're going to teach a course on it very soon. Well, our host, Hannah, is here with us. So I'm going to let her take over and uh, talk to you. And then uh, we will finish your segment. But that was amazing. You are amazing, Kirthy. <laughs> I, I can say one thing. I don't want to debate you. <laughs> I think you would win every single time. So, Hannah, are you here with us? I want to introduce Hannah is our host of Hello, the show. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm going to let you go ahead and and um, ask ask Kirthy anything you want, if you want to, about her debate and the crossfire and all of that. Yeah, your segment was really amazing, Kirthy. Um, one of my questions I had when you were talking was, have you ever had trouble maybe talking on the spot during crossfires? Because I imagine that it could only be so much stress and pressure. Yes, it is definitely a lot of pressure. It was, it was a dark time. We don't talk about that time. Okay, one time I was in a public forum lounge and my opponent's impacts were all about saving money. Well, my impacts were all saving people. So I, being a debater, brought that up in the class file and asked the rhetorical question of, what's more important, money or lives? Now, obviously, I didn't expect an answer. And even if I did, the answer could have been lives. So imagine my astonishment when this dude's just like money. I could have explained how lives could, can't be replaced. Money can, blah, 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 blah. But for some reason, this guy just stuck a wrench into my thought process. And I was just like, uh... So, do you think bananas are secretly in disguise? Wow, <laughs> that must have been very, very hard. Um, and I also heard you mention during your segment that math and logic also played a role in your debating experience. So I wanted to ask, uh, how is propositional calculus related to math? Because honestly, it seems to be more logic and less math intensive. And why is it called propositional calculus if it has no relationship with math? The funny thing is that proposition, propositional calculus is sometimes called propositional logic as well, which seems to be a more fitting name for it. It's actually used to prove mathematical theorems. We know the properties of equality, congruence, you know, basic pre-algebra stuff. A theorem can be proved while axioms, more commonly known in math as postulates, can be accepted as true without proof. Once you dive into the laws of logic, you can begin to see that math relationship. For example, the law of syllogism is basically if P then Q, if Q then R, therefore if P then R. 
This is de demonstrated the transitive property of equality slash congruence. So you might as well call it the transitive property of then. As a link to it, eh? 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 <laughs> Tough crowd, huh? All in all, math is debate's mean cousin. And debate is that one cousin who won't stop talking. You know, I should make my segment about logic, too. Welcome to my segment, Nerd Extraordinaire, with youth debaters and fiction writers and logicals tonight. I'm going to have to work on that. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Uh, math and debate are related in the terms of logic, if you think about it. I never even thought about that. And as a six-year debater yourself, would you have any tips or maybe tricks to give potentially new debaters? Or even any experienced debaters in the audience right now? Um, well, I think people get nervous while talking in public because they think people are judging them. Because because you're significantly less nervous if you're just sitting in a room and talking by yourself. But if you're talking to someone or talking in front of a, a big audience, it feels really it feels like a lot of pressure on you, and you don't really perform as well as you could. So I would recommend that. You just imagine that people aren't, aren't judging you. They aren't listening to you while you're talking. And that can really help you build that confidence, which can make you a better debater. Wow, that's, that's really great advice. And I think that's it for this segment. Make sure you stay tuned for our next segment, where Rose will be discussing her thoughts on the education system and its role in food and diet. We want to hear your thoughts and we want to answer your questions. So email us at be the star you are, teen radio at gmail.com. That's btsya teen radio at gmail.com. Check out our radio site at www.expressyourselfteenradio.com and our creative community site at www.btsya.com. You can get involved with the Be The Star You Are charity, buy books and t-shirts in our store, sign up for a free newsletter, and make a donation to Be The Star You Are. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Express Yourself. Here we have Rose, who will be discussing her thoughts on education and its role in food and diet in her segment, Bite Share. Hello everyone, my name is Rose Sarner, like Hannah mentioned, and I'm back with my segment, Bite Share, which focuses on the importance of urban food policy and food access. 
Since this episode is all about back to school, I wanted to highlight the importance of education in places that some people would might not think of. For example, while I've explored my passion for urban food policy and food access, I realized that my work led back to education. When I began exploring the importance of food access in my community, I started at a local bodega. I began volunteering there. However, as important and rewarding as it was, I did not feel like I was making as large of an impact as I could. I was starting at this bodega and I started passing out healthy produce to people who would walk by in downtown Los Angeles. And as rewarding as it was, like I mentioned, to see families walk by and skip away and just be really extremely happy because they didn't receive fresh produce that was given to them for free, I didn't feel like I was making a large impact. I then began to start researching and noticed and began noticing the importance of education because it's one thing to give someone healthy produce, but it's another to teach them how to use it. Our schools play an important role in changing dietary habits by educating students on food literacy. According to the Center for Disease and Prevention, U.S. students receive less than eight hours of required nutrition education each school year, which is far below the 50 the 40 to 50 hours that are needed to affect behavioral change. Additionally, educators are encouraged to teach nutritional education classes at schools. However, given the important role a person's consumption of healthy foods has in preventing chronic diseases and supporting good health, ideally educators would provide students with more hours of nutritional instruction. Research has proven a connection between healthy diets and one's emotional well-being too, and how emotions may influence eating habits. Due to the large number of required classes in many schools across the country, administrators and teachers should consider ways to integrate nutrition education into their existing curriculums. And this is really important because, like I mentioned, it's one thing to give people healthy produce, but it's another to teach them how to use it and teach them how to incorporate it into their lifestyle because that really creates long-term change and creates change that can last for a while. And in the United States today, citizens have access to public education, road maintenance, law enforcement, and more. However, one's access to healthy produce and food is where healthcare should start. If people are living off of food from convenience stores and fast food franchises that are filled with chemicals, it will ultimately lead to their risk of diseases in the future. Access to fresh, fresh produce is one factor that will aid citizens' health. However, being educated about the food you are putting into your body is what will affect long-term change. Unfortunately, nutrition education is not a priority in our country's educational systems. Between 2000 and 2014, the percentage of schools providing required instruction on nutrition and dietary behaviors decreased from 84.6% to 74.1%. Typically, wellness programs focus more on physical education rather than what is put inside our bodies. While exercise and diet go hand in hand, a balanced diet is crucial to making a difference in our overall health. After all, we are what we eat. Beginning in the 2022 and 2023 school year, K-12 
California will become the first state to implement statewide universal meal programs in public schools. According to the California Department of Education, California's universal meal programs is designed to build on the foundations of the federal national school lunch program and school breakfast program. In addition, on July 9th, 2021, Assembly Bill 130 was passed that states that there will be 150 million in one-time funding to support kitchen infrastructure and nutritional staff training. I think this is a really important step forward in creating a more sustainable food systems within, because it all starts with schools and what people are being educated on at such a young age. And California's universal meal program is a much needed first step because it's different for the first step to be, again, like I mentioned, just passing out food and giving, even just at public schools, giving people healthy pro, healthy produce to for lunch and dinner. It's really important to give them these items and then also pair it with nutritional training. And like I said, they're pairing it with nutritional staff training. This will really improve children's eating habits. However, California schools, they do still lack a comprehensive health education and food literacy program. A solution that California schools have begun implementing into elementary, middle, and high schools to help increase nutritional education are school gardens. School garden programs can increase students' nutritional knowledge, willingness to try fruits and vegetables, and create positive attitudes about fruits and vegetables. Not only are students able to learn about how to maintain a garden, students are also able to learn firsthand how produce from these gardens can be incorporated into school meals. Additionally, the knowledge students, students gain from their experience maintaining a garden can aid in their academic success. School gardens provide students with a hands-on learning learning environment that allows students to ch the chance to explore a real-world activity that lectures or worksheets cannot accomplish. Eva Ringstrom, director of Impact at Food Corps, says that maintaining a school garden ne necessities that nutrition lessons become consistent, built in part of students' educational experience. When children spend days, weeks, and months growing their own food and maintaining a proper garden, they feel accomplished and connected to it, which further encourages students to practice such habits in their own lives. So this is really getting at this important idea that even going back to school, I feel like I am able to engage in conversations with that have to do with like politics and that have to do with um, even just engineering or constant um, things that are in the news become more or become easier to talk to when I'm in school because I am being consistent and I'm learning consistently and I'm feel more comfortable with the information I'm being taught. So it's the same idea with this nutritional um, idea and that being with, when children are taught nutritional information, they're really able to take it home and then talk to their parents about it, which again, creates the long-term change that you're really looking for when creating a solution to the food crisis. According to a 2017 evaluation of Food Corps, 
conduct conducted by the Tisch Center of Food Education and Policy at Teachers College, Columbia University, schools that provide frequent high quality opportunities for hands-on nutrition learning result in students to eat up to three times more fruits and vegetables at school lunch, regardless of whether or not that food was grown in the garden. Such effects extend outside of the school environment. A 2018 randomized control study by Nancy Wells at Cornell University found that children whose schools provided regular school garden lessons had more access to low-fat vegetables and fruit at home than children without that curriculum. Moreover, during research conducted by the University of Georgia between 1990 and 2010, it has been shown that garden-based learning had a positive impact on students' grades, knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. Beyond increasing students' knowledge of nutrition, education, school gardens allow opportunities for students to engage in real-world applications of topics explored across disciplines, math, science, English, and history. School gardens incorporate a hands-on approach and learning style, which is essential in encouraging positive attitudes towards learning and is essential because you don't get that kind of learning within a lecture or a discussion. It really incorporates a different learning approach that's an essential to development and child behavior. Education and a positive attitude towards nutrition is the start in changing the food crisis in America. To create a sustainable food system, people in California and the rest of the country need to understand what they're eating and how to prepare, prepare and maintain a balanced diet. Simply giving healthy food to students will only accomplish so much. We need to change the way families think about food. Teaching in our schools how to eat properly with healthy ingredients will make generational change in how Americans live their lives, as well as provide countless physical and health benefits. So the real takeaway here is that education is key. It's key in creating long-term change and especially important when trying to change your habits. Wow, that was a great segment, Rose. Um, when you were talking about the gardens, I I remember in my own school, I feel like in elementary school, we actually had our own garden similar to what we were talking about. Like we would grow tomatoes, kumquats, flowers. And I feel like you're right. It really did incorporate a more hands-on approach and made us more excited about eating healthy food. And I do think it's a really big shame that a lot of schools focus solely on physical education rather than focusing on teaching students how to stay healthy through dietary methods and also just generally just what they have for food around them. So I just wanted to ask, how does one begin educating themselves on subjects that they don't focus on in school? Like what resources would you or maybe a student looking for more information would look for? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's so funny you used a garden when you were younger too, because I remember in my elementary school, we we had a garden, we grew stuff in the garden, but it really just wasn't, they weren't combining the education aspect, which I think is really important, like we were mentioning in the segment. And so I think for one to begin edging, educating themselves on subjects, they don't focus on, like for me, it was this garden. It's really important to 
read articles outside of your school and try to find there's a bunch of free classes online or even documentaries that explore a variety of topics so I think just gaining as much information as you can from different resources is really key in being able to find your next passions and uh, even a quick Google search will do it. Um, I began looking at universities and colleges um, for specific information because I think those are places where students have complete free range of what information and what research they want to do. So I think that's a great place to start. And there's so many little nooks within the website that you're able to find for different research that you really can't find anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. The internet is definitely a great resource because you can basically find anything about there. So why not food? That's a really, really good idea. Um, especially with like hospitals and schools who offer like specific studies. There are there's a lot of material out there. And when on the note of like educating different like people, individuals and students about food access and dietary methods, I just like your segment focused heavily on that. So I wanted to ask, how did you know or on what basis did you know that the root problem to fixing food access was rooted in education? Well, I think that's a great question because it does take a lot of time. Um, I'm sure that when you're finding the root problem and you're beginning research, it does take a while and you know that going into it. So like I mentioned, it's really important to research from a variety of perspectives and understand different research and how they're doing it and what varies between different projects and how that is really affecting their results. But I think it also comes from personal experience, like my experience at the bodega um, and versus now even my experience here on Express Yourself, I'm able to reach a larger audience. I'm really able to advocate and talk about things I'm passionate about. Um, so I think that when I decided and I realized that it came from education, it was through my experiences advocating for this issue. And I realized that the only true way I'm making a difference is by educating people. And the only way you will make a difference is by giving people education from a young age about um, food access. Absolutely, that's 100% correct. And I agree, like uh, I remember our gardens when we were talking about it, both of us, you know, had gardens, but there was a sort of gap between education and schooling and these like mini gardens that elementary schoolers could, you know, participate in or maybe hang out in. Um, so it might have been hard to form that connection between students and all of these dietary and physical benefits. So what advice or tips would you give to maybe new school educators or teachers that want to create a nutritional program at their schools? Yeah, I think it's like I even just mentioned in the last question and like we were talking about, it really comes from your experience. Um, so I think that it's really important as an educator to make the nutritional program engaging and make it hands on because like I shown and between all the studies I've done research on, it really comes down to the behavior, the behavioral change and the change that you're going to make in someone's life is really heavily affected on 
the hands-on aspect, what they're used to doing, what they're doing um, consistently too. Um, so I think it's making a creating a balance between experience, hands-on learning, and also um, education and giving them tools and like specific facts that we all get in school. Um, I think it's also making, even for anyone too, um, it's important to teach someone how to make a quick a change a large change work in their specific lifestyle because that will look different for every kid at a school um because whether they're living in an apartment whether they're living in a house they might and they're trying to eat healthier i mean it could come down to whether they want to learn how to buy healthy produce sustainably um versus like whether they want to create their own garden so i think it's also important to really as an educator, tailor um, the focus to the different kids you are working with so they can make yeah. a change in their own life. Yeah, absolutely. That's very great advice and insight. Um, and unfortunately, that's it for this segment. Make sure you stay tuned for our next segment where Shariana will be having a conversation about literature in school. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Hello, and welcome back to Express Yourself. I'm Hannah, and here we have Sharanya, who will be discussing school literature and English. Hello, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to my segment, The Scribble. Ah, the beautiful break for the amazing season of summer is coming to an end. It was just yesterday when I was on this show for the beginning of summer, so let me insert some nostalgic notes into my voice. Well, school is going to start, and I think, like the start of summer, it's a bittersweet moment. No more sleeping in and then going to sleep at random times in the night. But at the same time, you get to meet all your friends. Well, something other than the socialization that I'm looking forward to are the writing assignments and amazing creative tasks that teachers give you. In my school, we have things called tutorials, which are two periods in a week completely dedicated to whatever you want to do. I think one was even just relaxing and sleeping. When our English teachers want us to embellish our writing or reading skills, they set these tutorials up and they're absolutely amazing when you sign up for them. There are so many techniques taught and I personally love them. 
Of course, there are times when procrastination gets the best of me and I need to sign up to finish all the assignments that are just sitting there in Google Drive. But I usually sign up for the writing ones. And I just had this random thoughts about my procrastinated assignments. You know how in Toy Story they made the toys have feelings and made them living organisms? I would think that many of my assignments would be bored little pieces of paper waiting for me to write on them because the amount of procrastination that I do is kind of shameful. Anyways, back to the tutorials. What I found absolutely comical in them is that they're so fun to be part of. Even my friends who used to absolutely cringe at the thought of writing enjoy these fun little workshops. For example, we once had this prompt to pull out a book in our backpack and flip to a random page. There we could use the first line on the page as our first line for our writing piece. One person I knew had the book Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It was the remix of the obvious classic by Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. And they picked the zombies version out because apparently the classic bored them. I personally think something that people should learn to do while reading classics or books that are pretty old is try to engage themselves with the beginning. The beginning is quite difficult to comprehend. It took me about four tries to completely finish Wuthering Heights, and when I did, I personally loved it. Anywho, the person flipped to the page and said, and the page said, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. When you think about the sentence, you honestly think, hmm, the story that I'm about to write would be fitting for a zombie apocalypse, but no. This person decided to write their short story as an introspective story that states the school that that states the thoughts of a high school dropout. I'd like to say that these writing tutorials instigated my love for writing even more. There wasn't this notion that, oh my gosh, I must complete a piece every single period. There was a stress-free environment, which let my writing juices flow easily. Notice how I'm not talking about anything in particular today. I'm just going through experiences of school last year, which was my first in-person year after the pan after the quarantining. And honestly, I think it's because going back to school is chaotic, and so my segment's going to be a bit chaotic today. You're never sure of what will happen, and as normal human beings, we have this tendency to make things seem worse than they are. So our mind is a scatterbrain before school. So today is going to be rather an activity to help sort out our half-hazard minds and get us on track for school. So let's do this. Something I love doing in my free time is wordsmithing. I love reading mysteries. To be honest, my bookshelf of all the books I bought are completely filled with just mysteries because I love them so much. The, the mystery classics like Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, and more, they just gave me the inspiration to uncover words like they do with crimes. Although crimes are a bit more intriguing at times gruesome. Over the summer, while I read multiple books because I loved reading, I made a list of all the words that I absolutely loved and got addicted to. I don't know if I'm the only one that does this, but I get addicted to a word and then I use it time and time again. Then my need to reuse it again and again wears off. I remember distinctly the first time I did so. It was in second grade and I just learned the word 
benevolent. I called everyone I met benevolent. For example, in Teacher Appreciation Week, I made a card for my teacher and called her a benevolent person. Then I called people my age benevolent. There were kindergartners skipping on their way to school. And since I was in second grade and obviously thought I was so mature for, you know, being a second grader, I used to wish for them to become benevolent people. I was so mature back then, wishing people to become benevolent at second grade. So this was the first time I got addicted to words. And then this unusual habit kept on happening. So for this summer's list, I made a list of 10 words because 10 is just like a perfect number. Let's get into it. The first word is ebb. The second is picturesque. The third is amok. The fourth is bastion. The fifth is hurl, which is kind of a common word. The sixth is cromulent. Seventh, enterprise. Yet again, it's a common word, but I just think the flow of the words just got me addicted to that word. Eight, silhouette. I got into drawing a bit this summer, and I think something that came up a lot in the drawing videos was the word silhouette and I realized how pretty of a word it was so that went into my permanent vocabulary that I use every day. The ninth one haughty h-a-u-h-g-h-t-y that was an important word because for the first five books I read throughout the summer that book was prominent everywhere and the tenth one dusk which is pretty obvious but I just like dusk as a whole. So those are the 10 words I have today. Wow, that was a really, really interesting segment. Um, all of these words have very, very interesting meanings. Uh, and you talked a lot about writing and literature that you found interesting in schools. Um, so one question I wanted to ask is, what are you looking forward to the most this year that's other than writing? I think something I'm really looking forward to is just having fun while learning other subjects too because um, after that I'm going to be going to high school and I really think I'm going to end off my um, experience at middle school with a fun productive year and so all I want to do is have fun while learning, have fun with friends, and then um, make eighth grade a really productive year. Wow, that's a really, really great goal. High school is going to be a good time for you, I promise. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed our show today. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today's show. As always, we express our gratitude to Star Style Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be The Star You Are, and our Voice America Empowerment Crew, especially our audio engineer, Josh. Thanks to our guests from across the world, and a huge thank you to our listeners for making us a top-rated program. For more information about Be The Star You Are charity, visit www.bethestarur.org. Find us on Instagram at expressyourselfradio. Get ready to go back to school. Homework awaits. And as always, remember to speak up, speak out, and express yourself. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself. Produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars to shine between the lines if you would let yourself.